This is Dialogue in Review. Hello, and welcome everybody to Dialogue's second uh, quarterly Dialogue in Review broadcast and soon to be Dialogue podcast. Uh, this is a, an innovation that we have, are bringing to you to try to get behind the pages of Dialogue, to try to talk to the people who are writing and creating art and creating knowledge, uh, and to, uh, to, to really kind of dive deeply into some of the issues that Dialogue has raised. So um, we have, I believe, an opening song. Is that correct, Miss Andy? Can and it's coming really quickly. Sorry. Okay. That. Sorry about that. Um, actually, we will we we will we will uh, we will do a closing song instead Let's of do that. instead of an opening song. Uh, but I am going to ask uh, Andy Pitcher Davis to say our opening prayer. Uh, I'd love to. Okay. Thank, thank you. Our Father in heaven, we're grateful to be gathered here this evening in the presence of creativity and art and literature, in the presence of knowledge. We are grateful for the Sabbath day and for the holy worship that we've had um, this day and for the company of our brothers and sisters across the country and across around the world. We're grateful as makers, as poets, as, as those who are like, like the divine in creativity, that um, are able to share in this divine gift of, of making and creating and, and um, in an endless manner of exploring a gospel full of creativity. We're grateful for thy son, for our families. We bless those, ask that they would bless those who are not near us, that they may be well and be thought of. And we're grateful for all that we have. And we say these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you very much, Andy. Uh, Andy Pitcher Davis and uh, I, I'm Michael Austin, are here as representatives of the Dialogue Board. And um, we have invited five guests who are artists and poets and writers uh, to, to really try to kind of get behind some of the art and literature that is in Dialogue. And this, this is hopefully will be a little bit of a counterweight to the very article heavy kinds of podcasts that, that we normally see because articles are topical and articles uh, give us themes that we can trace. But really I think what has always been unique about dialogue is it's one of the first places and one of the best places for a very long tradition of, of Latter-day Saint art and literature. So, uh, I'm going to introduce each of our guests, and then I'm going to ask them to share a little bit about their work and, and what they have contributed to dialogue. And then we're going to get into what I hope will be a, a free-flowing, no-holds-barred conversation about how art and literature work uh, within Mormon culture and across cultural divides and, and what we can really expect of our artists. So we're going to begin with Ron Richmond who, if I'm gonna get the screen here, um, let me see who, let's see. Do I get to introduce Ron? Why don't you introduce Ron, Andy? That's I would an love excellent to. idea. Ron is not just one of our, actually, there are many artists in, in, in the art world. We, we, we talk about artists, artists, and there's those of us who are artists and there's, and we love certain artists. And Ron is an artist, artist. And many of us as artists say that he is our devotional painter. And I believe that is up there with Gary Smith and um, Walter Raines and, and Minerva and, and many of our, our, of our great, great devotional painters. And he was shocked when I said this to him, that it was not me that said it, it was somebody else who brought it up. Ron, I've known for many, many years. Our families go way back. And in the end, at the end of this is a piece of artwork that connects Ron and myself, a, a, a mountain and a town. And I know his family well, and he knows my family well. But this, this was a joy to be able to feature Ron's work in this and, and of Ron's work, I really do think that um, one of the things is so amazing about Ron's work is it is as if it is lit from within, it really is. And one of the, 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 the capture of an ephemeral sort of thing, and I don't know, Ron, do you wanna talk about whether you even think that you capture that, but the sparseness, and if maybe Michael, 
Ron, would you want to introduce your art? Would you like Michael to show a few of the images? Let's show a few of the images real quick. And okay. you can kind of talk about them. But it is it was a great honor to, to work with this. And this is one of my favorite dialogue art issues ever. So, um, so this is okay. something, there we go. So here is the, um, the front cover of the, of the fall issue of Dialogue, which I believe is called Exaltare number four, correct, Ron? Correct, yep. And then just a few others of the just really remarkable works of art that, um, that Ron has created and that, uh, that we've shared in, in this issue of Dialogue. Um, if you want to kind of talk about, let me pull these up. That one's called Alter. Okay. And this one. I love this, this quote that Ron said that uh, others have said of his work. He says, the presence of absence or the exquisite longing for the unobtainable. And the other, the other quote of Ron's work was that compositional incompleteness, the powerful vacancy is both disturbing and serene. And I felt like this idea of the disturbing and the serene and, and, and an emptiness of soul and Ron, I don't know if you want to touch on that, is, but the emptiness of soul and emptying our souls of something that can be filled with, with something different and outside of ourselves can be disturbing and it can be serene. Yeah, I think, uh, well, since I was in college, I was really interested in the idea of the sublime, which ties into that, that it can be uh, sublime in nature can be both uh, destructive and redemptive and, and uh, it's so disturbing and serene. And I like that dichotomy of trying to get some of that, both of those things simultaneously in a painting. I'm gonna ask Ron one question and maybe it's something we can come back to just a little bit. I know we're talking about the larger scope of art and literature within Mormonism, but Ron specifically, since I know you, I can ask this of you. What is it that in the making of art plays into your practice of, of worship, your practice of religion. In that, is there, is there a connection between those two things? Or is it just a living? Is it your nine to five? No, no, it's a, you know, I, I decided way back when that if I was going to do this, there needed to be some kind of profound reason, at least for me to do it, to sustain a lifetime of doing art. It wasn't enough just to decorate or make pretty pictures for me so uh, so right in the beginning I said it's it's got to mean something to me symbolically in order for me to carry that on for a for a lifetime and and so they're they're very interconnected my faith uh, my belief and and what I paint uh, I have to say it's interesting I have several of Ron's I have a Ron painting and several drawings and I find that I'm in constant conversation with them, excuse me. And the conversation lasts more than just seeing them the one time. So those are, those are sort of things where there's room for someone to come within it, a piece and have a conversation with those. So thank you, Ron, for being a part of this issue. Oh, my, thank you for asking. I'm very pleased to do it. Okay. So Ron, um, exultare. Can you kind of give us the origins of that painting? I mean, I think it's one of the most striking covers we've ever had uh, at Dialogue, and um, and that's saying something. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's one that I probably thought more about that that cover than any any painting I've ever seen on or in Dialogue. Well, th thank you very much for that. Uh, as far as uh, well, how how they're painted. Uh, you know, it's it's really interesting. You you could just hang a piece of cloth on a chair or a table or or hang it on something, but there really is something to the folds. I spend a lot of time getting the folds just right. Uh, for for some reason, it, it really matters. Uh, there there's some significance to the way the cloth is folded, and and I don't know that there's a a secret to it. I just keep rearranging it, rearranging it until it feels like something uh, something more than just a cloth sitting on a table. And uh, it's, it's hard to describe how that works, but uh, I, they become a little anthropomorphic. I think in my mind, the cloths are really substitute for uh, us or for human, human interactions. Uh, 
So for me, they actually represent people without, say, illustrating a person's face. And then someone say, well, that doesn't look like what I imagined uh, or, or something. So they, they can become generic, but at the same time, anthropomorphic, they become uh, hopefully living you know, one of the so oh, fascinating. I will put a link. I'll put a link in the chat to Ron's video. There's a time lapse of Ron painting this painting, and I'll put a link real quick. And but 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 he's sitting there and he says, you know, it's as if I have a dial with paint, and the paint tells me what. And so it was just really fascinating that conversation, the give and take between art and maker. So I, I really appreciated that. So, but I will send that to you put that in the link chat so i mean what what i and i'll just say what was going through my mind and i am i'm an english guy not an art guy um but you know i looked at i looked at cloth and then i looked at what wasn't there and then it just kind of dawned on me that what isn't there is the whole point of the easter message you know the whole point of easter is what wasn't there i mean in in some sense am i missing the boat no, I think that's a great comment. Uh, yeah, and, and I think that ties to the two quotes that uh, Andy read in the beginning. Uh, there's, something, there's something powerful about a, a vacancy, about what is not there. And for me, it, it ties, I haven't studied a lot of Zen Buddhism, but it, I, I think there's a connection there of uh, trying to attain something that is unattainable, uh, sensing something that isn't actually there, uh, there's something about that vacancy that uh, at least intrigues me. And I, I've always been a minimalist in that way that my paintings are usually just one object centered and uh, not, not much else there. But what's not there is just so immense. And, you know, I, it takes real skill to paint what's not there. Well, thank, thank you. I, I try. <laughs> okay. So let's, um, Let's go to Esther Kandari Christensen, um, who ha has not yet appeared in dialogue. One of the reasons that we asked you to do this show is we're trying to convert her. Um, <laughs> but she is, uh, in, in one of my other hats, she is, um, I am working with her to edit a book uh, of art by young LDS women of color who are artists. And that is something that was based on a Sunstone presentation that uh, we at BCC Press hope to have out uh, this year for you to look at. And it's, I think it's gonna be amazing. But um, just gonna show a few of Esther's paintings here, if I can make all of this technology work. Okay, so. One of the things, Mike, while you do this, I want to explain about painters, and this is the same writers, of course, but especially painters. This is such a, this was the first Esther Kandari painting I saw, and it's huge. It's that one there, or this, this one? one? Nope, next one. And it's, it is larger than Esther herself, and it's stunning. But the thing of it is, is as painters, they make their living brick by bit brick. It is line, is stroke, brushstroke by brushstroke. And you can see the brushwork in Esther's work. It's not like they invent, invent an app and it's duplicated. It's even not like um, reproduction sell of these so much uh, to sustain them. This, this market for original artwork is like being a mason and to go to work every single day. And it's the same for writers, I believe as well. But just to do this amount of work is such, um, and, and to see the quality of work that Esther is producing at this age and also her work ethic is astounding. And it's, and it's also inspiring to me and others as well. So that's sort of my take on what has kind of been really a very quickly up and coming um, artist within the Mormon art world. And this, this is a piece that is owned by the church. And Esther, maybe you wanna talk about just mentioning selling that piece to the church. And these images and creating um, a visual of what is the abstract in our principles. I think I see both in Esther's and Ron's work. Thank you, Andy, that's very kind of you. Um, just FYI, Michael, I just go by my maiden name professionally, so it's just Kandari. Okay. No offense. Um, no it, problem. I know it's a dance on Facebook, but that's just because that's what I go by with immediate family and at church. Um, yeah, I, where to begin? Uh, so yeah, obviously I'm a mostly a figurative artist and I just love the human figure. If you look at my my journals from when I was a kid, even before I could write, my, my parents were always really big on journal keeping and my parents helped me keep a journal from a very young age. And I would always ask my dad to draw eyeballs. So 
you know, back when I was three and dictating to my father what was supposed to be in my journal. He, oh, there's all these fantastical drawings of eyeballs because my father's a designer as well. And that just stuck, I guess. <laughs> and I've, I've kept that. And I think what has continued my fascination with the human form as I have found my place in the religious art world is the reflection of the divine and the implications about the divine that can be made by using the human figure, um, both for better and for worse. And as Andy was saying, um, I am very passionate about bringing to light issues in the BIPOC scene. Um, growing up mixed race, it always put me in this really interesting space where I could see what was happening in the white side of the church and also what was happening in the minority side of the church. And also my father being an immigrant and having spent some time overseas with his family, seeing how the church is different in America versus overseas and some of the real theological problems that are presented by the Eurocentric culture of the church that is often placed on a global community and global organization. Um, and so that kind of goes into like the negative side of how I've seen the body used to perpetuate, often I think sometimes um, unconsciously, a lot of negative stereotypes about who God is and who we are as their children. Um, so yeah, that's, that's a little bit about my work. I don't know what else you want me to say. And yes, I am converted to dialogue. I love the work you guys do. And so just call me, let me know which piece you want. And we will get done eventually <laughs> on the burner. Um, actually, can you talk a little bit uh, about your master's thesis and the artwork you did for that and the religious nature of that? I, that to me is, is just an absolutely fascinating project. Sure. Put any of your pictures in there in this file? Let me see if I can I have find your file. While, they, while you do that, Ron, you have a piece that was in the salon a couple of years ago that I'll send you, Esther, that is is similar to this. And I see this, the, the same echo, Esther, in, in Ron's figurative work too, is that we are, we are patterned after, you know, this, the, the, um, the essence of our own sense of divine. And, and I'd be interested in one day talking with Blair about you, with you about this, about, about corpus, about body and about divinity also, so. Yeah. Um... All those aren't in there. Seems to me that I'm going to add one right now. So okay. there should it'll upload in a second. It's the Rachel and Leah painting. Um, yeah. So for my thesis, um, I I knew I wanted to explore the way that art allows us to empathize with others. That was the broad idea of what I wanted to approach. And as I researched various topics, what I was drawn to were, you know, first of all, the stories of women in scripture. There's so much to dive into there and so much richness that hasn't been explored, both on the written academic front and on the art front as well. Um, and the niche I decided to go with was stories of infertility. And the reason for this is, as I was reading all these various stories of women, I realized there was this huge gap in the way that these stories were told. And that a majority of many of these women's lives, you know, whether that was Sarah or um, Hannah or, you know, any of these other very well-known figures, we always talk about the miracle in their life. We don't talk about the experience of infertility. We don't talk about the experience of faith being tried and prophecies being unfulfilled. And I feel like art has such a power to address those spaces in people's lives and people's experiences. And that's when we need the gospel. That's when we need spirituality is during those times. And we, we weren't doing that. Um, and so in preparation for the deliverable portion of my work, I did a ton of research. So I, I reviewed the collections of, I think it was the Met, um, the National Portrait Gallery, um, one of the big museums in London and one other museum, I don't remember off the top of my head, but three or four really large museums that have a lot of figurative work in their collections. And I looked through all of the paintings that had Sarah, um, Rachel, Hannah, and um, Oh, I'm blanking. Um, John the Baptist's mother, Elizabeth. So I looked at all paintings that had all four of those characters because those are ones you can pretty consistently find in art history. And I categorized them by whether or not the painting addressed their life after or before they had a child. And the vast majority addressed their life afterwards. So there's all these pictures of them, you know, carrying their child or, you know, seeing their child as an adult or interacting in a point post-miracle. 
Um, I did the same thing with Deseret Book and Fine Art America's collections as well to try to see if, you know, there was any difference in modern depictions. And it was pretty much the same. Uh, I think it ended up being about 75% of the paintings were about them having a child. And of the 25% that addressed their life without a child, a vast majority of those were unrelated to having children and unrelated to infertility. And so it was just silence on that topic. Um, and so then I did a bunch of psychological kind of review research as well, looking into what the current data is about how communities respond to infertility, especially religious communities where childbearing is such a central theme and um, often seen as a purpose in a woman's life for better and worse. Um, and again, it was just this dead silence. Like there was this emptiness in the narrative visually and written wise. Um, and so that's what I was working to fill with uh, the deliverables that I painted. So each of these paintings represent a moment in these women's lives. So this one, that one right there. Okay, so this is Sarah that we have pulled up right now. Let's, let's start from the beginning here. One of the things that's fascinating, and I'm going to jump in quickly because I have a question as you go through these. As you depict this, this is a topic that is so taboo, you know, infertility. We don't speak of it. It's sort of, um, and there again, I go back to Blair and queer theology, another thing that is taboo. We have these keepers of taboo. And Esther, I'm curious as we go through these, and you chose this fairly arbitrarily. I remember, I remember talking to you about this, but in depicting the taboo, this thing, what do we find? What is it that it is? Um, because this is, as our role as artists and writers is to describe the, the experience and teach others to see. But these are women who largely, I think, when I say these women are taboo because they're infertile, oftentimes I say that they are, they are invisible. Mm -hmm. They're invisible from a society, or maybe the BIPOC woman is, or maybe the queer, queer woman is, or maybe this, these women are not seen. And the artist and the writer teaches others how to see. So what yeah. was your experience in, deal, in dealing with something that was sort of a subject that was, you know, to, to make seeable the unseen? Um, it's something that I find personally very humbling and simultaneously empowering. It's probably one of the main driving factors of my work. Like, I, I love how you phrase that as making the scene unseen and that you could phrase most of what I do under that umbrella. Um, personally, I found that with this series, it's really floored me the responses I've gotten from people and how seen that they felt. Like I knew there was a need to address this. The data showed that, but seeing the, the qualitative responses I've received, it, it just is such a testament that this work needs to be done. Um, and having conversations with friends who are in these circumstances um, and hearing their stories and hearing how it mirrors the emotions that I, I saw in these stories as I was working to paint them and, and reading different, you know, versions of the accounts. Because when I when I address uh, scriptural stories, I like to look at lots of different versions of them. So I'll look at, you know, Talmudic and rabbinic interpretations and various different Christian denominations and just try to pick them apart as much as possible and find as much nuance as I can. Because I recognize that my lens as a member of the church is limited because I was raised with a certain view of a lot of these stories. Um, but yeah, so that's just kind of an overall to respond to your question. So this particular painting, this is of Rachel and Leah. And uh, what I was trying to get at here is simply the grass is greener on the other side. And that feeling that I think women experience in lots of different scenarios and what will, women are willing to give to get what they feel like society is telling them they have to have. So in this scenario, you know, Rachel feels like she has to have a child to have value in society. And Leah feels like she has to have the attention of her husband to have value in society or to be fulfilled. Um, and each of them feels like the other has, well, you know, what they want. And this is the moment where uh, Reuben brings the mandrake root from the field and they have the whole party thing of like, you know, you get a, a night in the tent with a hubby and I get the mandrake root and all of its magical properties. Um, but it's also a parallel of how much it takes for modern in for women in modern society to address infertility that you know the average infertility treatment is about ten thousand dollars and so that creates a real cutoff for a lot of women especially a lot of minority women where if you receive a diagnosis like that your hope of ever having a biological child and you know all the cultural implications of having one is cut off to you because of economic reasons 
um, and you know what people are willing to do to try to make that happen and how inaccessible it is for so many people. So that's that one. And then the next one um, of Sarah. Here, let's 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 go through these quickly, and then we got to get to Janine. So yeah. let's. Okay. No worries. So let's go through that one. Loquacious on my on okay. my work. You're good. Um, You're good. Yeah. So this is Sarah, and it's it, it's simply just the feeling of being prophesied or promised something and watching it slip through her, your fingers. And so there's grains of wheat sifting through her fingers because she was given the same prophecies as Abraham. And it's one of the few scenarios in the scriptures where the wife is explicitly told something as well as the husband, but she watched those go unfulfilled. And how did those emotions affect her? So that's the basic of that one. And then the third one is uh, Hannah and Elkanah, her husband. And this is a moment when they're at the temple, they've gone to worship. Um, she stepped off to the side to have a little bit of a meltdown because it's really being rubbed in her face that she is infertile and her husband being a good but clueless husband is like well I'm a good husband aren't I as good as having children and she's like and doesn't really cut it dude um, and it just it felt like such a timeless moment I think all of us have experienced that in our life with various people we're close with where we have this hole in our hearts for whatever reason it might be and people want to fix it but don't know how and maybe make it worse in the process. You know, one of the things quickly, and as we move on to Blair and others is, is this notion, and I was just writing um, about Giant Joshua and um, about the characters in Giant Joshua and, and another BCC book that's about to release be released. And one of the things that's so, so interesting is visual artists capture a zeitgeist very quickly. They don't have to wait for a book to be published and these other sort of things. And you've caught this, Esther, I think in your work, and I spoke about Giant Joshua, which uh, was written in what, 39, 41? I'm gonna make it wrong. 41. 41, and the idea that, uh, that she wants to be seen, like this is a book that was taboo within our Mormon culture. And I said, I, said, I, said, I, bo I actually bore my testimony of Giant Joshua today all over the pulpit. I said, all were moved by her spirit. She wants to be read. She wants to be remembered and named and spoken. She wants to be released finally. She wants to be taboo, taboo the things such as she may be. So I think that that's also a good way to kind of segue in, into talking about uh, Blair's so poem too. Let's talk about the casting out of spirits by Janine IRB. This is a really good story. It's uh, one of the, the best three-page stories and the most Mormon three-page stories that I have ever read. Tell us about this story, Janine. You're on mute, Janine. Sorry, I thought I got that. Well, um, yeah, I'm a ward organist and I'm also a writer. <laughs> and so those things were going to collide eventually. Mm -hmm. um, uh, this story was uh, inspired actually by the ward chorister um, in my ward growing up who took her job very, very seriously um, and would never allow herself to be released from that job. <laughs> and so I just kind of envisioned this this personality of this person who, who took her job very seriously. And that's kind of what we're asked to do in the church is we're thrown into these roles and we're asked to fill them and the Lord is there to help us. But I mean, that I think that can kind of become an identity of sorts. I mean, I've been a ward organist for past five years now, and I don't foresee stopping that anytime because it's a dying art. So, so I'm at the risk of kind of giving it away. I, I will say that this not only involves the calling of the ward organist, but there's also a little bit about the spirit world in here. Yeah, I, I have found um, recently, uh, in the past couple of years, I've been very inspired by the thought that the spirit world is all around us. Mm -hmm. the, the idea that, um, I guess I feel a real closeness um, to my family that's passed on before me. Mm -hmm. um, especially, there are some very creative people in my ancestral line. Um, my, in fact, my, my great-grandmother... I was just reading through memories about her on Family Tree, and someone said that she never bothered a great deal about housekeeping, but she gave other important things preference. And so she was, you know, 100 years ago, she was busy learning to paint, and she was busy baking, and she was busy making and doing and creating. 
Um, and so kind of when I sit down to write, I, I feel like she and, and my grandmother, who was also a very creative woman, I feel like they're kind of at my backs. Uh, they're, they're kind of standing there over me as I write, as I play piano, as I do any of these things that I'm working on. Um, besides the housekeeping, of course, <laughs> there's more interesting things to do. Um, but I feel like they're, they're there. And that makes sense to me in, in the, in, in the, in the message of our doctrine, how we minister to one another, we are God's hands on earth. It makes sense to me that our family that has passed on before us would be God's hands in our lives as well and continue to do so, um, as we're living and, and growing and learning. So what are the, you know, where are you located? Where do you live? I'm in Utah. Okay, you're I'm, in Utah. I, I yeah, Utah County. I didn't want to make any assumptions about you know, <laughs> no. being in Utah or not being in Utah. But so you're kind of there in the midst of Mormon culture, Latter-day Saint. For Saint sure. <laughs> um, but you find, you find so many elements of that story, of that culture to bring into your stories in, in clever ways. What uh, what about the culture and what about the doctrine do you feel inspires you to write fiction? Oh, boy. Um, I think being here and being surrounded, I, you know, I grew up in California and I was always okay. kind of hesitant when my husband was like, we're going to live in Utah. We've got family there. It makes sense. It was like, it does make sense. But I was always kind of like, I don't know if I want to live there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but being surrounded um, seeing the people, the, I guess, seeing, seeing, seeing the trees instead of the forest, if you know what I mean, where, where I'm kind of, um, giving in a little bit, I guess, stopping the resistance and being, being a part, being a tree amongst all these other trees and being able to be a part of that and, and grow the culture, I guess. I, there are a lot of things about our culture especially here in Utah that are just laughable <laughs> that just yeah. that just make me giggle and that's kind of my goal sometimes when I'm writing is just to make myself laugh <laughs> but um uh there's also a lot of things that that probe deeply um and I think that comes to the doctrine is is culture is born of of our religion and our doctrine and what what we're taught and sort of I guess you could say culture is an art on its own, the culture that we've raised. It's sort of a, an interpretation of the doctrine that we've been taught. Um, it, it occurs to me reading the story um, and, you know, my in my professional life, I, I have been uh, professionally um, a administrator at a Catholic university for eight years and at a Methodist university now for six years. So I've, I've been just engulfed in the cultures of other religions. No other religion could have written your story because nobody else has callings and releasings from the congregation. That, that's something very unique that we do. And, and the idea of somebody so fixed to a calling that, uh, you know, that they're there and that, that they're there, you know, after they die. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Read it, read it. I don't, Spoiler alert. <laughs> I, can't, I can't not give too much away. But uh, that just so resonated with me as, as a sense of, of how we take ownership of our part of the ward. And that, that is just something that is, is really part of our culture that you don't see in most cultures. It's true. I think callings are are the way that we create our community. I think it's, it's so much about the ward and so much about um, the the things that we're asked to do in our, in our church community are about building that community, right? Like I, the the ward would go on without me being a Cub Scout leader. Yeah. But yeah. that builds community, and that's that's an act of creation in itself. I think. Absolutely, absolutely. That's the, just the the way you brought those cultural elements together was so clever. So what else are you working on? Um, well, <laughs> I have a one-year-old, so that keeps That's me busy. to work on. <laughs> but um, no, I I'm working on my entry for the Lit Blitz this year. I don't know okay. if uh, if you guys have have spent too much time reading those, but I've been featured heavily there. Um, 
You can read some of my other essays and stories that have been featured there. I had a poem in Eriantum this last year, but if you ask me, I'm not a poet. This was a one-off thing. <laughs> okay. You're, you're, here, you're here to represent all fiction. I know, I'm kind of a jack of all trades, but we're, I we're lousy myself, with poets tonight. Do you? <laughs> I find myself most often writing personal essays and short stories and and just doing kind of what what amuses me at the time. So I'll let you know when I uh, get the time to sit down and get through a, a whole book. But for right okay. now, it's uh, it's short fiction is what I can get myself to. Well, thank you. And and now let's, you. let's turn to poetry and Greg Brooks. Um, and Tell us a little bit about yourself, and then I want you to read Casual Violence in Sunday School, because I okay. love it at home. I, okay. I did want to say, I'm always trying to get fiction writers that have like dabbled in poetry to write more, because they're always so good at it. So I'm kind of an evangelist trying to pull them over. So please write more, Janine, because I'll, and I'll have to check out that poem in Ariantum. Um, so my name's Greg. And I'm a post-Mormon, culturally Mormon poet and student at Utah Valley University. And most of my work has been at my university's literary journal for the past five years. And so if you were to go through those back issues, you'd probably see a poet that's experimenting with a lot of different forms and finding his voice. Um, and I think the poems and dialogue kind of represent me maturing a little bit, hopefully, in terms of accessibility to, to my work, as opposed to really just trying to see how much I can break language just for the sake of it. This one, I think, has a little bit more heart, or at least the poems in, in dialogue do. Um, you wanted me to read Casual Violence in Sunday School? Oh, Saturday? you can read whichever one you want, but I like that one a lot. I was surprised that one actually got in because, <laughs> I don't know, writing it was an interesting experience. Um, so this is Casual Violence in Sunday School. John the Baptist was a hairy scorpion who skittered out from the wilderness and began stinging folks until they saw the Holy Ghost. He molted like all prophets do, lived in caves, under rocks, until the predators found him, took his mandibles, his head. A dove landed in the blood, tracked little V's across the stones. We, the ones who hear the story, some of us too terrified to speak, we wonder when the martyrdom will slice our way, and why our fathers sharpen knives below the pew. Emphasis on death, on liquid pride dripping down a hanging tree. Carry a sword, perhaps of words. Defend, find prestige in priesthood might. We were children when we heard decapitation was the only course to save the world. Just kids when Hans Mill came out on VHS. I stayed up every night after my baptism, wringing my hands, worried God would command me to kill. And if he did, how I would shrink. And that was casual violence in Sunday school. Oh, I see. I love that. And I, let me tell you what I when I read that poem, I had this image in my mind that was so clear. When I was at BYU um, in the late 1980s, yes, I am that old. Uh, on the fourth floor, where I did most of my stuff, I don't know if it's still there. I have not been on the fourth floor of the Harold Beely Library in a long time, but there was this picture of Judith beheading Holofernes, just you know, just cutting his head off and, and it's just blood squirting out everywhere. And that's what I studied by for, you know, for three years. And I just, it was so hard to reconcile, um, reconcile the, you know, the, the peace of the library and the sort of the, the goodness of the gospel with this woman whacking this guy's head off, you know, huge. I mean, this is a huge, is it still there? Does anybody know if it's still there? They probably got rid of it, but I mean, it was just an awesome painting, but it was gory. I, I love like, what you're bringing up there, though, is that dichotomy of mm -hmm. like, and it's not always spoken about. And I think that's what I'm trying to tap into a little bit. And I was worried maybe I'd gone overboard a little bit. Um, the depictions of violence sometimes are cathartic for yourself if they traumatized you, but you risk re-traumatizing an audience, right? But it's not particularly there, graphic. I found, I found um, it. Do you, no. you want to speak to this piece? This is such an important piece. And it's even, I think, better than the Caravaggio, to tell you the truth. Profoundly. Wow. Yeah, is this painted uh, by go ahead and explain this? Uh, I don't know if I can explain more than what, what we see, but it's I believe it's by Janileski, the, the, the female uh, Renaissance painter who yes. has just recently 
kind of come, you know, she's kind of coming into her own a little bit. At least people are recognizing that she was a legitimate and a very uh, amazing painter and artist from the Renaissance. But this is one of the things that's so profound about this is this is from a female's perspective and the force and the torque and that that strength that is there, I think is even stronger than her contemporaries in many ways. But that depiction of violence, I think, you know, there is that sense as, as you said, Ron, earlier, there is there is destruction also. So it kind of fits in this idea of violence and and uh, the how the 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 dichotomy of things. And, and just a side note, she had suffered some uh, abuse from men in her life. Hmm. Horrible, horrible abuse. That's right. And that this has just been really obvious to me this year going through the Old Testament, which is my favorite work of scripture. I, I love the Old Testament. But the Come Follow Me manuals, they'll do like six, six chapters, and then they're going to leave out two. And in the, if you look at the two they leave out, you know, that's, that's in Judges where, where the courtesan is dismembered. We're not going to talk about that. We're going to talk about, you know, some other things. And I love, I love it when, when a poet kind of brings that to the surface and, and kind of makes us grapple with what's really in there. And it's not always like a wise thing, but it's certainly an ambitious thing to try and speak what's maybe silently on people's minds. Sometimes you miss in a big way and people are like, that was just you. But then other times people are like, oh, I felt that too. And that's something that's been kind of invisible going back to some of what we were talking about with Esther's art, where it's like, it's a lived experience for so many people that the fact that it hasn't been spoken about or depicted or given artistic play is is a real shame because so many people deserve to have their stories represented. Yeah. I just want to jump in and add to this. I did a piece recently that explored some of these similar themes about the story of Yael or Jael in the Old Testament. And as I've been that's going through, through the head lady. Yeah, that's the tent peg through the head. Um, something I find really fascinating is you look at the historical interpretations and yeah, what is said as much as what is unsaid in religious scenes about these stories that have been in the text for hundreds of years is that when it comes to women and violence, we don't know what to do with it. And if we do, it's often framed as them moving outside the bounds of what is acceptable womanly behavior, even when they're doing it for the exact same reasons that a man did it two chapters ago. And so when a woman beheads someone, it's this very taboo subject. This is very like, oh, like how dare she as a genteel woman take a tent peg to someone's head. And we don't want to address that in Sunday school, but how many times have we heard David and Goliath in Sunday school? And the only difference in these stories is that it's a man versus a woman. And the way that we see gender roles in context of violence, often violence for the sake of protecting one's family or protecting something some people hold dear. And that's just been really clear to me as I've restudied those stories. Yeah, I mean, I think here's a, here's a theme that's coming together. I, I was hoping we'd find some of these of you know, this is art and literature that's that's showing us what we don't usually see, sometimes in very positive ways and sometimes in not so positive ways. Or maybe, Michael, it's art and literature that is teaching us to see what is plainly before us. There you go. There you go. I think that, that is more, more, more the case, is that these artists and these poets are teaching us to see what is plainly right before us that we've missed. Okay, read us another one, Greg. Your choice. Sure. Glad I bookmarked it. I did want to mention too that in that particular poem, Casual Violence in Sunday School, there's some hints at me at least trying to make sense of some of the, the legacies of violence that passed down father to son in, in the form of, in some ways, priesthood, right? Maybe not directly, but if you're taught to emulate a priesthood leader, do you emulate them in all their behaviors, right? And so when our fathers are, quote, sharpening knives below the pew, it's that juxtaposition of like, they're in church while they're doing this, and then they go home or they go out into the world, right? But they're there in church while they're doing that. Um, so that it's something I'm still kind of figuring out. Um, I think I'll read uh, by Bestiary. Hmm. Do I have that one? Go ahead, Keep, start reading it, I'll find it. All right. I suppose only the animals that paired off and shuffled up the ramp survived the flood. So this bishop pointing out that we would rather flirt than marry, well, he built an ark out of the trees lining the church property. 
he grew a beard overnight and pounded the pulpit, crazed with the fire of righteousness, saying, get thee hence, freshmen, find a temple, make babies. See the rivers swelling with rain? You have no time. Buy a ring. Every week I'm invited to the zoo, single salesmen, white shirts and ties, as if the weight of straight men could convince me to marry. In fact, it sends my body into the water, another animal, the last of its kind. Dang. So talk about that one a little bit, and I suspect that's going to be a really nice segue into uh, Blair. Oh, yeah, it would be. Um, so that one, I think, is uh, probably one of the more, like, sense-making kind of poems that, I've, that I did. A lot of these poems are coming from a very particular point in my life, probably three, four years ago, maybe. A young single adult, very depressed. <laughs> uh, frankly, um, unimpressed by what I was receiving at church and trying to find my own spiritual direction in addition to life direction, right? Usually those things are paired, especially at that age. Um, and with that, understanding my burgeoning um, bisexuality and, and kind of what that meant in the context of Sunday school, um, where I, I remember there was a lesson once where they told us to have two backup dates for every date and we should do a date every week. And they drew like a staircase of like how to go from like three dates a month to then engagement and then marriage. And just my eyes just kind of glazing over. And I would just, at a, a certain point, I started coping by reading the um, Fire in the Pasture anthology edited by Tyler Chadwick. And there's a lot of poems in there that deal with like celibacy and, and sexual orientation and, and just like what it means to be in a body. And I, that was kind of freeing for me to, to be able to think about what it meant to be um, more than just what fits into the, to the box that I was being taught in church. So, yeah. And, and let's, I think that is such a good segue into Blair, who is a quadruple threat here. She has published both an article and a poem uh, in dialogue in the last two months. I'd like her to talk about her poem, but also a little bit about uh, her recent book, for which I was the editor, uh, called Queer Mormon Theology, which has really shaped our landscape a little bit. So, Blair? Thank you so much for having me um, with these amazing panelists. Um, so before I even introduce myself, I just have to say stuff to everyone else because I love everything everyone's saying. Ron, I love your minimalist work and everything you're saying about what is absent and what is missing is so important because that's where the imagination gets to play. We don't get a lot of that in the correlated art. It's all depicted. It's all very clear. We have the answers. This is what's right in front of you. But your art, this minimalist art, and I love abstract artists for this reason as well, too. You get to play here. Your imagination gets to take gets to get gets to take a field trip here and so i love your work keep doing everything you're doing it's absolutely fantastic and um kendari oh my gosh i want to sit and talk with you over your favorite beverage and talk to you all day about infertility and queer bodies and intersex bodies and gender roles and everything you just said your work is amazing and i love the symbolism in it. it's so it's so beautiful so beautiful but I'm all in. <laughs> and both, yes. both Ron and Esther, you guys know that Blair in her own right is a, a, just a really fine painter. And, and Blair's abstracts, especially I love. So, um, and, and, and really a productive artist as well, so. Oh, thank you, Andy. Um, okay, so Janine, right, Janine, we have never met and this is my first time meeting you. Um, oh my gosh, I read your piece of short fiction in preparation for this and never did I ever feel more at home. Like for a second, I was on the verge of feeling like this is every Mormon's person experience ever at some point in their life with someone in the church. There's, there's, I've like never read anything more Mormon. And then as it went on, I was like, how did this possibly surprise me with being more Mormon. And it was, it was so beautiful. The last line, there was nothing more Mormon than that line. It was like, all my work is like evolved around transformation and all these things and everything, but you just gave me more Mormon. And I was like, I'm delighted and I love it. 
I love it. And Michael is absolutely right. Like if, if a non never cultural Mormon read that, they just be like, I don't get it. And it's like, that's because it's not for you. It's for us. We all just got it. It's, it's like the ultimate inside joke. We all just got it, you know? Um, and Gregory, oh my gosh, your poetry. Like I was floored. I loved cultural violence. And I'm so glad you read the other one though, because um, the last line of the poem you just read, what was it? Oh my gosh, the last of its kind, like in Mormonism, going along with some of uh, Kandari's work, like if you're not a breeder, what are you? You're going extinct. You know, that's, that's, that's a lot of like the interpretation of theology. Like if you're not a breeder, if you're not going that direction, you're on your way to extinction. And that one hit me so hard in so many ways, in a lot of personal ways. And I absolutely loved it. So anyway, I'm just thrilled to be here with amazing artists, amazing thinkers and writers. And um, anyway, so um, I mostly talk about queer stuff. I wrote a queer book, Queer Mormon Theology. Um, I do some poetry. I do some painting. Um, I do some academics. I do some writing. Um, I, when people always ask me what I do, I usually just, just say independent scholar, which is just code for, you know, pretty smart and pretty unemployable. So um, <laughs> that's pretty much what I do. Um, but here tonight, we're talking about oh, a poem I wrote. Um, so this poem. <laughs> you want to read it? Uh, sure. Yeah, I would love to read it. Um, just as a quick preface. Um, so most of the work I do revolves around queer stuff and everything. And this is the most heterosexual thing I've ever written in my life. <laughs> and um, it's a love letter to my husband. And one thing led to another and it ended up in dialogue. And so I am thrilled uh, that it's there. Um, but I shall read. It's story time now, right? Okay. <clears throat> Young gods. Slipping off a Sunday dress and hoping you'll join me and undress. No more dark slacks and white shirts. Corruption of innocence tends to hurt. It's worship too irreverent for pews. Forgive my transgression against a holy muse. But trust me, crisis leads to transition. Take your time. Steady your volition. Have a bite of this forbidden fruit and see, nothing you knew is what it seems. Come with me and I'll show you a sight as our bare souls gleam in the evening light. Look beyond the garden where life is genuine, life with real power, real risk, and real sin. I'll crush a snake with my heel and a subtle grin, the act barely even bruised my skin. The world has finally made her debut, Orange rocks, a purple sky, an ocean blue, pink clouds, green leaves, all brilliant hues. The lone and dreary world isn't dreary with you. We're out of the garden now. Look at what has been endowed. We'll till the earth by the sweat of our brow and ask all our questions, no more sacred cows. Close your eyes and imagine eternity, then manifest that vision with me. Heaven is here on earth, if we're willing. Our cup runneth over, possibilities are spilling. Bring your gods, I've brought mine too. Together we'll find out which ones are true. We are that we might have joy, and priesthood power is ours to employ. I can see you have an appetite. Here's my fruit, have another bite. The work begins tomorrow at first light, but let's laugh like young gods tonight. Wow. So, um, yeah, I, I'm not even sure where to begin with this. Like, again, it's so, it's, it's so cis hetero. It's so, but yet it is so me. Um, I, I wrote it as a love letter to my husband because in so many ways, so much of my work, I live in the queer world, yet at the same time being in a mixed orientation marriage, my husband very much keeps me tethered to the straight world. And when I say tethered, I mean that in a loving way, like holds me to the ground, like gravity that I'm not like floating away. Um, and in so doing, I ended up writing this also. Um, this was quite some years ago um, during the midst of his faith transition, I would say coming off the tail end of his faith transition and watching him experience 
the world fall from his feet and literally his Eve coming up to him and being like, and we very much have an Adam and Eve relationship. Um, you know, I'm like, I have this fruit, have some, he's like, are you sure? And I'm like, yeah. (laughs) And he's like, but we're not supposed to. And I'm like, do you intend to obey all of father's commandments? Take a bite, son. Um, (laughs) But for me, it was very much a way of working through this process of transformation, walking away from uh, a, a sense of ignorance and a blissfulness in a lot of ways, but walking out into this new world. And um, in a lot of ways, that new world can be scary, right? You're leaving the garden. You have everything you need with you. But when you leave, um, to me, it was just filled with opportunity. It was filled with all these new interesting things, everything from new textures to new ideas, to new sensations, to new foods, you're experiencing everything differently. And so when we talk about being kicked out of the garden, I'm like, I'm not being kicked as much as I am exploring the space that allows me to further my journey into godhood. I can't get there without, without the opposition. And um, it's something, you know, that I'm doing with you know, my husband, and um, he's definitely my co-partner in that journey. And um, so that's how the poem came about. And so Esther says, I'm going to quote here, that was so spiritual, sexual, and powerful. I don't think I have ever heard anything that combined the three in a way that felt so sacred. And, you know, I had the same, I had the same response. There, there was a sacredness. There was a sacramental nature of this poem. Um, that, that again, very few other denominations could see that in the Adam and Eve story, but that Latter-day Saints do. Well, and I think also, um, I, I love that you could see the combination of those things as something sacred, because I really think they ought to be something sacred. Um, I definitely don't shy away from sexual content in what I do and what I write about and things like that, because it's just part of the job when you do queer theory and queer theology. But um, I, 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 I think that there's some place for the sexual in the sacred, so long as it's, um, I, I want to say honest, you know what I mean? As so long as it's honest, um, a, a lot of times with my work also, cause like not so much my academic work or anything like that, but like poetry is the one medium for me where I feel I can be the most honest. I come to poetry to tell the truth. And there are a few mediums that allow me to tell the truth in the ways that feel like I don't have to constantly filter and edit and make everything cogent and make it perfect and pristine so that you can read this and you can understand me. If you get it, you get it. If you don't, you don't with my poetry. And that's totally okay. You can walk away completely confused. And I'm really okay with that. Um, because poetry is this place where we're almost, you know, uh, it's almost because sometimes people don't take poetry seriously, that that's where we can tell the truth. We tend to think of poetry as like, oh, these words on paper and oh, they're frilly or make you think of things. And it's like, uh, uh, I was having a conversation with Stephen Peck a while ago. I don't know if anyone knows Stephen, he's a phenomenal writer as well. And um, he was saying, you know, sometimes I feel like there's more truth in poetry than there is in science. And um, I, I feel that way so much of the time because poetry is that place where we can explore these new ideas again, kind of like back with Ron's work. There's like this, there's like this, it's what's not said. That's where we get to go play. And that's what poetry is like. um, Oh, we don't get to talk about heavenly mother and general conference. Guess what happened? Um, A million poetry books are out about heavenly mother and people are speaking and talking because poetry is the place we went to go tell the truth. This is what her story looks like. That's okay. It's not going to be the patriarch story. It's going to be the poet's story and the poets are going to get that ball rolling for us. And um, that's one of the many things I love about poetry. I don't claim to be a particularly good poet. I don't claim anything, but um, I do, I do think it's important that it needs to be written. It needs to be shared. These are where the ideas are really being exchanged in ways to where they could not be exchanged in any other way. Because it's honest. It's honest. So the bell is saying that it is seven o'clock and uh, I'll let, explain how it's going to go from here. We're not done. We are going to have a formal closure which we were going to have an opening song and a closing prayer, but now we're going to have uh, a closing song because we had an opening prayer. Then I will stop the recording 
and then we're just going to talk to each other and we'll bring in, you know, we'll bring in more comments. We'll, uh, we'll, you know, stick around because th- this is actually where it gets really good is after we formally close the podcast part. So, um, Andy, do you want to introduce yes. the, the closing song? I'm, I'm very pleased that we did not have this as the opening because it makes much more sense as a closing. And, and, um, and to set this up, this is a piece of music and art that I created with my nephew, but to go back to Blair, Blair, it's interesting. Um, I remember somebody saying to me once, poetry is the only thing you can take with you. And the last time I saw Ron in the flesh, we were in both in Colorado. And uh, I, I, this piece of art is um, Be Still My Soul, which I play the dulcimer. My stepdaughter, Rebecca, uh, uh, Davis Stevenson sings like an angel. Maybe we we recorded this with the family band and my other stepdaughter, Liz uh, Davis Maxfield plays the cello and we recorded this probably 2001, I think. Um, But I placed it with a video, a drone over what had been destroyed. And Ron and I were were in the place called the Troublesome Wildfire had destroyed my home. And this is the connection we have is this connection to place and Ron's family's home as well. And we looked at the mountain, Ron, do you remember what I said to you? I, I said, I'll just say, I said, it was shattered, it was as the mountain was shattered. And this goes back to your comment, Ron, about art being destructive and the violence of this. And I said, if we had a million dollars, what Mormon artist would we hire to depict this, this idea of this mountain just shattered? And uh, the way this came about, we decided Clay Wagstaff, by the way, uh, with a pencil drawing, a 42 by 42 pencil drawing. But, uh, but anyway, so the, the interesting thing is, is that as this came about, this was people would ask me, and I haven't talked to Ron about this, but people would say, okay, the fire, the troublesome, was it an act of God or was it an act of man? I said, neither. It was an act of the goddess. It was a reckoning and well overdue. And I did two pieces of art, the two pieces that I, big pieces that I did were, um, they were assemblage pieces and they both were based on the hosting the troublesome goddess. And, and so this piece was, and my piece in Springville goes back to this idea of the feminine divine being all of it, being the creative and the destructive, being everything. She is all of it. And, I, and, and it was a letter, a thank you letter. I said uh, in Springville, my artist statement said, you know, before the fire, we would host at, the, at our home, people, lovely people, important people. I said, as of October 21st, 2020, we hosted the goddess. We hosted all of the unnamed, all of the meek, all of the mothers of the innocents. We hosted a reckoning and that's a step up for us. So this is Rocky Mountain National Park and hosting the troublesome goddess. Be still my soul,
You've been listening to Dialogue and Review. To find more Dialogue podcasts, please visit us at dialoguejournal.com. And thank you. Dialogue Podcast Network.